I'm Dr. Sarah Hales Britton. I'm Luke Patrick. And I'm Sam Siegel. And welcome to Grease Lightning, a podcast where we talk about myth or today history and movies and try to see what we can learn. Hey guys. Ooh, yeah. Fun twist talking about history this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is going to be a wild ride. Uh, a oh, truly I, wild ride. <laughs> I cannot wait. So, um, so it, we'll start the episode how we always do. Sarah, what is your relationship with uh, Zack Snyder's seminal film, 300? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. This is a bit of a saga. So, um, I watched... I watched the movie this morning, and this was actually the first time I've seen it all the way through. Um, mm-hmm. I had only seen bits and pieces before, because when we were in high school, my dear, dear, dear friend, uh, who, for preserving identities, we'll just call Pete, Pete the yep. Prude, um, <laughs> he liked this movie, and we would like watch movies together um, fairly frequently in high school, um, but... Pete is a very devout Baptist, and so couldn't handle the amount of boobs in this mm-hmm. movie, especially not watching with his female best friend. Uh, right. So I went over to his house to watch 300, and all of the sexy bits and some of the gory bits all got fast-forwarded through. Uh, okay. So I only saw, like, half of it, and I didn't really understand it uh, because mm. of that. Uh-huh. So... That's my relationship with this movie, is I have now finally seen it all the way through, and I can make fun of it legitimately instead of just from here. Yeah. So, I'm curious. Um, what did you... First of all, I'm curious which gory bits he cut out, uh, because there's a lot. And mm-hmm. uh, how was it with the, the sexy and gory bits? Uh, I gotta say, um, it didn't improve it that much. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it improved it a little bit, I guess. Um, because mm-hmm. the whole, like, Gorgo is the lone female character in this movie. And uh, mm-hmm. she was basically completely cut out because of his editing. Um, so it was nice huh. to understand that side of the story. Um, right. Which, uh, by the way, is completely made up. Um, but, <laughs> uh, you know, things like the... the I think I think one of the things he cut out was when they like build a wall with dead bodies, um, mm. which again, what the fuck? But um, like that part's pretty cool. It's also pretty yeah. ridiculous. So it sort of like cancels itself out. I feel like in terms of my movie experience. <laughs> now, Pete, Pete, um, that the wall of dead bodies is fairly chaste in it terms is. of gore. Compared yeah. to many of the things that we witness in Pete, yeah, <laughs> you okay, bud? <laughs> I, I honestly, I am completely baffled by that because I thought it was going to be one of the many like decapitations, um, or or really any of the bl- brutal killings. But yeah, the wall I, of bodies. I'm pretty sure, like the the like most emotional decapitation of like the the guy's son right I'm pretty sure he left uh-huh. that in yeah I remembered that um, yeah so huh. yeah questionable choices were made yeah well you know Pete was younger then that's true yeah. so hopefully when he watches Three Hundred now <laughs> uh, with his with his wife uh, they they watch all of it yeah his weekly watch of Three Hundred. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> oh god, now I'm imagining that. <laughs> it it has rotted his brain, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, oh man. Well, what's you guys' relationship to 300? Sam, break yeah, it off Luke, first. You, Go okay, for it. Sure. Um. So, I can't recall if I saw it in theaters, but. I did watch it, like, multiple times because as, like, a teen boy, this movie kicked ass. It had nudity, big check mark. It had a lot of violence. Great. It was a lot of manly men doing manly things in a way that, you know, really, really got me uh, the kind of energy I desired as... Uh, really not a manly person at all. <laughs> um, just a, a weak, pasty boy uh, who really enjoyed uh, historical violence. Yeah. So so I watched it mul- multiple times. I did end up watching the sequel at one point uh, many years later. Didn't really enjoy it. <laughs> um, and so this is the first time I watched it in a very long time. Nice. So, uh... Yeah, different perspective this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my relationship to this film is basically the same, although I don't remember watching it specifically because it was manly men doing manly things. It was just... Mm-hmm. This movie was just massive when it came out. Yeah. Like, it's it hard was. to... When did this thing come out? 2007. 2007, yeah. So, like, when this thing landed, it just made a huge splash. Pretty much mm-hmm. everywhere. Uh, yeah. So, I don't know. So that was my relationship to it was just that it was this huge thing that everybody wanted to watch. So we'd go to parties or, like, we'd be hanging out at people's houses and they'd be like, yeah, we should watch 300. And then mm-hmm. we'd watch 300. Yeah, um, yeah it's weird because it's my relationship has somewhat progressed because uh, in the cosplayer world, there are Spartans. Have you guys run into oh. this before? Well, no. I, I do have a cousin who's very into gaming, and her, like, online persona is Gorgo, so nice. I don't think she ever has huh. done, like, cosplay, but there is that. Yeah. Interesting. So there's this whole group of people that, like, they're just dudes who have, like, an online community where they talk about workout stuff and nutrition, and they get absolutely shredded and then go to things like Comic-Con in the Spartan outfit, and they're just there to be hot guys. So it's this weird, like... Equalizer oh at cosplayer conventions where like, yeah, there's a lot of skimpy, skimpy outfits, but there's also dudes that are shredded in skimpy yeah. outfits, and that's their whole thing. That's kind of awesome. So, I mean, considering that like all the shredded dudes in the movie are pretty clearly CGI shredded dudes. Uh yeah. mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, it's Who awesome. would have thought that three hundred would herald fourth wave feminism? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah so that's that's been my most recent introduction or like uh you know establishing connection to 300 so i was pretty psyched to see the source material for this sort of uh wave uh just you know kind of taking a look at the the text the original text so yeah yeah or as uh as Sarah put it in our chat this morning, what was it? The, uh, God. <laughs> the movie interpretation look, of a comic interpretation of history. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I didn't I didn't know until yesterday that 300 was like a comic book before it was a movie. Mm-hmm. 
which explains a lot, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, boy, I don't know about y'all. It does feel very much like a pre-housing crisis movie. <laughs> I Like, I don't know exactly how to, like, quantify that or, like, fully explain it, but it just feels like, yeah, that is a movie that came out right before the housing crisis. Mm. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I can kind of see it. I mean, it's big budget. It's big muscles. It's big gore. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just it's big all everything. Big. It clearly cost a lot of money, yeah. and no one really had a plan for how to pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, I love that. <laughs> oh. Uh, but Sarah, I'm dying to know the the history uh, behind this. Well, uh, buckle up, because okay. there's a lot here. Um, I, okay. I'm going to try to go through this as quickly and clearly as possible, um, because there's... We, I mean, we could talk about this for hours because there's who's the Persians, who's the Spartans. There are there's more than one Persian war, um, so okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to be quick about it. Um, but uh, our if this is your jam, want to like learn more? Um, the main ancient Greek source for the Persian Wars is a guy named Herodotus, who wrote a history of the Persian Wars uh, in like the 440s. BCE. Uh, these wars happened in 490 and 480. So he's writing about 40 or 50 years after the fact. Okay. Um, but he's writing in Athens. He would have known like older people who had participated in these wars. So um, he's got some decent sources. Um, it, his, his work is part history, part ethnography, part just made up. You know, criteria of truth is very different. <laughs> in mm-hmm. the ancient world um and he's very invested in the like the tragic pattern of the wars tragic as in like a tragic play and that structure um gotcha so he, he's interested in that pattern he likes to embellish he gets called the father of history and the father of lies um so if you do mm-hmm. go read herodotus just like go in with that little grain of salt um gotcha but he is our for better or for worse he is our our main greek source at least on what happened here so, um, just really quickly, who are the Persians? Um, I sent you guys a map um, which shows this is the Achaemenid Empire at the height of its power, um, which is where we're entering this story with the Greek and Persian Wars. Uh, so, the okay. ancient term Persian roughly describes what is now Iran and the formerly nomadic people who settled there. Um, this guy named Cyrus the Great. Uh, conquered the monarchy that was ruling there in the um, like 560s BCE, so 70 years or so before these wars really get going. Um, and Cyrus and his descendants gradually conquer almost all of Asia, northern Africa, Macedonia, which is north of Greece. This empire spans hundreds of thousands of miles, covers dozens of ethnic groups and languages. It is massive. It is insanely wealthy just everything about this empire is like out of scale for the time period it's just mm-hmm. insane um they it goes all the way from like i said northern africa and macedonia through pakistan up to the border of what is now pakistan and india um all the way up to that um jesus it's yeah it's insane um and it is extremely wealthy because they're drawing taxes from all of these places 
Um, and so mm-hmm. because of their extreme wealth, the Persians are very stereotyped in Greek literature and cultural understanding as being all the worst things that come with wealth. So mm. they're soft, mm. they're lazy, they're effeminate, they're immoral, yada, yada, yada. So this is factoring into the way that Herodotus understands them and depicts them. Um, mm-hmm. And so it factors into like lots and lots of depictions of Persians through the ages, including 300, um, because we, we get the Greek side of the story more than we get the Persian side. Um, mm-hmm. They were extremely wealthy, it's true. Um, and so some of these things are true, but a lot of them are stereotyped um, uh, about the, the Persian's character. Um, one thing we should know uh, that's, I think, relevant for this movie, uh, the Persian king was not a god king. He was mm. considered oh. an agent of the main god of Persian religion, Ahura Mazda. So Persian, ancient Persian religion was essentially Zoroastrianism. It's the precursor to modern Zoroastrianism. And like the head god there is Ahura Mazda. So the king is Ahura Mazda's agent on earth, but he's not himself a god. Mm. Okay, so like, sort of like a pope? Yeah, that's probably a good way to think of it, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, doing the Lord's work. Uh, gotcha. However, okay. whatever Lord you <laughs> want to substitute in there. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So that's the Persians. Um, massive, wealthy empire. To be honest, they couldn't give a shit about Greece. Um, now, who are the Spartans? Um, they're very important here. Um, the broader region that Sparta is part of is called Laconia. So this is where we get our word laconic because the Spartans are famous for their like very short quips. They're people of few words and the words that they do speak really have a lot of meaning behind them. Um, mm-hmm. And so we get a little bit of hinting at this throughout the movie. Um, but this is a, a sort of important part of their identity in the ancient world. Um, in prehistory, legend and myth, like in the Trojan War era that we've talked about before, Sparta is the city of Menelaus and Helen. So um, that's their sort of mythological background. Um, But in terms of history, by the 7th century BCE, uh, so, you know, a couple hundred years before these wars, Sparta is already a military state. Um, They have this reputation throughout Greece for invincibility in battle because they never surrender. They would prefer to die in battle gloriously um, than to surrender or to turn back from a fight. Um, It's a fairly egalitarian society in terms of gender. Women train alongside men because they're expected to uh, be in good enough shape to birth healthy babies who can then grow up to be Spartan warriors, um, which is pretty like that right there is pretty scandalous to the rest of Greece. Um, Mm -hmm. There is this very famous Spartan woman's saying, uh, which makes it into the movie, come back with your shield or on it, meaning either win Mm. or die fighting. But no surrender, no deserting your post. Um, Those are the only two options, are victory or death. Mm, Okay. Um, So that's, and that's in ancient literature. So I like that that line makes it in the movie. Um, Nice. One thing to know about the Spartans, and this is kind of awful, um, but it's, I think it's relevant for what we're talking about. Um, during the period that the military state was really coming together, uh, the Spartan citizens themselves, like within the city, perpetrated a shockingly effective reduction of all the surrounding countryside 
to slavery. Um, mm. They Ooh. so these and these uh, enslaved people were owned by the state, so it wasn't like uh, individual ownership of other people; it was state ownership mm-hmm. of all of these people that they had conquered. Um, and these enslaved people were called helots, so they labored as mostly farmers and like domestics. Um, and similar to the way that the economy of the U.S. in its early days was like completely dependent on the unpaid labor of enslaved people. Um, Mm -hmm. And the enslaved people at that time, right, vastly outnumbered the citizens who controlled them, but were unable to overthrow the system because of, like, the threat of extreme violence, the knowledge that the rest of society would come and crush them if they tried, right? All of these factors that went Mm -hmm. into um, slavery continuing in the U.S., even though uh, the enslaved so vastly outnumbered um, citizens. Uh, it's sort of a similar situation in Sparta. The enslaved, the Helots, vastly outnumber the number of Spartan citizens that there are within the city itself. Uh, but Spartan military discipline was so intense, and uh, Spartan brutality against the Helots was so intense that um, you know the Helots hated the Spartans. There were frequent rebellions, mm-hmm. but they never succeeded. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were always crushed. Um, so. There's this sort of funny double-edged sword where Spartan, the Spartan military lifestyle for citizens, where they're full-time soldiers from the time they're seven years old to the time they're 60, that's only possible because someone else is doing the work of keeping them alive, right? Someone else is farming and providing food. So they are dependent on these helots for their way of life. At the same time, they're also sort of trapped in their way of life by the existence of these helots and the fact that they so vastly outnumber the citizenry. If they want to continue to be able to put down rebellions of helots and not just be overthrown by them, they have to maintain this intense military discipline. Right. Sort of indefinitely. So this is is the sort of like double-edged system that Spartans have trapped themselves in. (laughs) They've created Mm -hmm. this military state uh, by enslaving the surrounding countryside, and then they have to maintain that military state because they've enslaved the surrounding countryside. Oh, um, damn. Okay. And another thing, um, when Spartans went out to battle, however many citizen soldiers you had going out to fight, every one of them had at least two helots who went with him, basically to carry his gear, because ancient armor is insanely mm-hmm. heavy. If you try to march for several days wearing that, you will die of exhaustion. So there's a couple of guys for every soldier to carry that gear and make it possible. So um, the image of just 300 soldiers going out, carrying their own stuff, that's not a thing, right? These 300 mm-hmm. soldiers went out with 900 helots. So it was, a, it was a group of 1,200 men who left Sparta for the Battle of Thermopylae. Now, helots oh, didn't always okay. fight. Uh, they were usually only armed in situations of, like, really dire peril. Um, Mm -hmm. And in in those cases, Spartans would arm the Helots and they would promise them their freedom in exchange for valor in battle. Um, I don't know what, if Thermopylae isn't a dire situation, I don't know what is. I don't see a world in which the Helots weren't fighting at Thermopylae, Mm -hmm. to be honest. Um, So that's just something to keep in mind. Like, it wasn't, it's the 300, the 300 citizens, but there were more Spartans than that who were fighting Mm. there. so you said um, that there's like a a uh, like a, sh- a shocking degree of enslavement done by Sparta. So uh, just kind of from stuff I've picked up, 
enslaving people at that time was not necessarily uncommon. No, not right? uncommon at all. But it was just the extent to which Sparta had done it. Yes. Uh, was yeah. far greater than anybody else. Yeah, yeah. Um, normally, you know, when when cities went to war, and we've talked about this before, right? Greece is not unified in any sense at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Individual cities are nations. And so when cities mm-hmm. went to war, um, and or, you know, villages are caught up in that, um, when a city is conquered, uh, usually the men are killed in battle and the women and children are enslaved. And that's pretty standard um, in gotcha. ancient warfare. So enslaving basically your neighbor, your neighbors, if there's a dispute and you, you are the winner, that's not uncommon at all. What is uncommon is like the systematic nature of this um, okay. in Sparta. And then also like the extreme level of brutality that continued against the Helots. So um, every year the Spartan government would formally declare war against the Helots, which basically allowed a Spartan citizen to kill a Helot with impunity if he felt like it. Jesus. Um, Spartan boys, you know, they, they live in the barracks from the time they're seven years old um, and until they're too old to fight, basically. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, they're, you know, they're starved. They're, they're not starved, but like they're, they're not fed enough so that they have to learn stealth in order to steal food to uh, nourish themselves. Of course, the pun- if you're actually caught stealing, the punishment is pretty severe, not just for the theft, but because you were caught. Um, there's, mm. you know, all of these ridiculous things. This very brutal way of life um, that they're brought up in includes basically being encouraged to beat the shit out of helots if they meet them in the street. Um, that's like part of their training. Uh, so this is why there are so many helot revolts. This is why helots are only armed in battle if the situation is really, truly dire. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's um, the systematic nature of it is really, and the level of brutality, I think, puts it more on par with modern slavery than most other ancient forms of slavery. Jesus. Yeah, that is fucking insane. Yeah. Yeah, that's fucking brutal. God damn. It's pretty gross. Um, yeah, sorry to sorry to bring you guys down with that, but um, well, hey, it's like you know, it's relevant, I think. Yeah, there, so. there's that quote. Uh, Jesus, what is it? Something along the lines of like, if you're studying history and you're not like grossed out, uh, you're not doing it right. Yeah. And yeah. so this this falls under that. I mean, uh, it's. Yeah. <laughs> I really I'd rather have that than the depiction we get in the movie. I'll yeah. say that. Yeah. 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 Um, so just one more thing to know about Sparta before we get to mm-hmm. the wars, um, because this is also relevant for the way things are depicted in, in the movie. Um, so the Spartan government is an oligarchy, which means rule of the few. Um, mm-hmm. So there are two kings in Sparta. There are two like leading families in Sparta. From from, okay. from its founding, and so the descendant, the like male descendant of each line is a king. They're co-kings. Um, because of some disputes, they they eventually decide that when they go out into battle, just like one king will be the commander because they would mm-hmm. end up with stalemates when the kings didn't agree on strategy. Uh, so they they co-rule at home. When they go out, only one king goes as general. Gotcha. Um, so they have these two kings. They're also religious leaders um, for for the city. Um, then there's a council of elders 
which is 28 mm-hmm. guys over the age of 60, which in antiquity is fucking old. <laughs> yeah, that's insane. Yeah, it's bonkers. So these are like super old men who these, these guys make policy. Um, and then there are five E4s, which E4 means overseer. Um, these five guys are elected annually. They exercise considerable judicial power, and they sort of provide a counterbalance to the power of the king and the elders' council. Mm. Um, so they are sort of like above, they can arrest kings. They're sort of the ultimate enforcers of the law. Um, mm. Rule of law in Sparta is paramount, but their laws were never written down. A lot of other Greek cities did write down their laws, but the Spartan laws were sort of written into their daily rituals of life instead. Hmm. Um, but these these E4s are sort of the most powerful people in the Spartan government. Um, they're depicted as these like weird priest monsters in the movie, which is yeah. not a thing. <laughs> yeah, I believe it says that they're like heavily inbred. Yeah, yeah. I don't I'd like I don't know how many times the narrator calls them swine. <laughs> yeah. It's not it's not great. Yeah, it's yeah. very weird. But that's so that's who the F words actually are. They're like the or ultimate okay. enforcers of law. So these so, these were just elected they're just dudes, right? Yeah, yeah, elected officials. So can you imagine being an E4 and then watching 300 and being like, "What? What the fuck, man?" <laughs> yeah, I want a goddamn election. Yeah. <laughs> I ran for this position. Yeah, it wasn't my parents some kind weren't of siblings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what my kind face of Game of Thrones shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Come on. I ran a good campaign, damn it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's super weird. It's super weird. Um, but uh, yeah, should we talk about the wars? Yes. Yeah. So there's two Persian wars. Um, the Battle of Thermopylae, which is what this, what, what 300 is all about is mm-hmm. the second Persian War. The okay. first Persian War happens 10 years earlier, in 490 BCE, and there's really only one battle. So uh, mm-hmm. this war gets started, um, this is when Darius is king of Persia, Xerxes' father. Um, it basically gotcha. gets, gets started because of an Athenian foreign diplomacy blunder. Uh, in the process of organizing a protective alliance with Persia, um, Athens agrees to present gifts of earth and water to the Persian official who's representing the king because it doesn't mean anything to them, right? But to the Persians, it symbolizes submission to the king. Mm. So Athens considers themselves part of this alliance on equal terms. The Persians do not because they offered earth and water. They are okay. they are going to be submissive to the king, according to Persians. Um, then there's a revolt of the the Greek citizens who are living in Persian territory on the west coast of Turkey. Um, These Greek citizens revolt against the Persian puppet leaders that have been put in charge of their city. They ask the mainland Greeks for help. Athens sends troops to help them. Uh, Mm -hmm. Now this revolt is squashed after a few years, but Darius sees this as a violation of their treaty, that Athens would send soldiers to help a revolt against him after pledging submission to him with earth and water. Mm-hmm. So the Persians go from not having a fucking clue who the Greeks are, not caring, to them being furious that they have just, like, disrespected the king in this way. So Darius gets together a force, and he invades Greece. He lands, his army lands at Marathon, 
which is this town. Guess how far away from Athens it is? (laughs) (laughs) This is the original marathon. It is literally, it is 26.2 miles from the town of Marathon, which is still there, to uh, the Acropolis in Athens, in the center of town. Um, Excellent. Athens uh, sends out urgent requests for help across Greece. Um, The only people who come are from this little town called Plataea that's just north of Athens. So it's just Athens and Plataea standing against this massive Persian army. But because of their very clever tactics, their use of the terrain, they manage to defeat, this tiny force manages to defeat the great Persian army at the Battle Mm -hmm. of Marathon. Okay. Darius swears revenge, but he goes home, uh, starts amassing an enormous force from across the empire so that he can invade again. But he dies before preparations are completed. So Mm. that's why the second invasion in 480 is led by his son, Xerxes I, who has taken over. Um, gotcha. Now, one thing to note about this, it's very weird for Sparta not to respond to a call for help, right? Uh, for them to mm-hmm. know that a battle is going to happen and not show up. Sparta showed up the day after the Battle of Marathon. And the reason is, they were in the middle of this festival called the Carnea, which is mentioned in the movie as like yes. the reason, this is the, the excuse that the ephors give, right, for not being able to go to war. I had forgotten about this uh, festival, actually, until it started doing research for this. Um, This is a really big festival in Sparta. It's like the biggest religious festival of the year. And all military activity is suspended during the Carnea. So when when Darius landed at Marathon and Sparta gets this urgent request from Athens for help, they say, well, we're in the middle of the Carnea right now, so we can't come now. But as soon as this is over, we'll send a force. So Mm -hmm. after a couple of days, they get their army together. They managed to march 140 miles from Sparta to Athens in three days, trying to get there. Oh, shit. Damn. But they show up the day after. (laughs) So the Battle of Marathon is entirely a victory of Athens. And this Mm -hmm. niggles Sparta. They hate this. Like, they have to admit that it was a great victory. They walk the battlefield and, like, talk to the Athenians. Mm -hmm. They're very impressed, but they're also furious. (laughs) So, uh, and the funny thing is that then in the second Persian invasion, 10 years later, Xerxes is here, right, with his insanely large force. Uh, They show up during the Carnea again. (laughs) 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 So, but the difference is this time, uh, instead of it just being the Athenians, they've got a little bit more warning that this is coming. All of like northern Greece, there's there's not a whole lot of big cities up there. These small villages that can't defend themselves and smaller towns, they're just rolling over for Xerxes because they can't, mm-hmm. they, they know they're just going to die, which is what Xerxes expects all of Greece to do. Uh, but central and southern Greece has formed an alliance. So there's like 30 city-states in central and southern Greece that have all formed this um, alliance to fight back against Persia, and they've chosen Sparta to lead them, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But then it's during the Carnea, right? During this festival where they're not supposed to be doing anything military. <laughs> and they take it very seriously. So, But they don't want a repeat of Marathon. And as the leaders of this alliance, they need to encourage the other allies to march out, right? So right. this is why there's only 300 Spartan citizens who go out to meet the Persians. They decide that King Leonidas will take an advance guard of 300 soldiers plus 900 helots 
Um, and they will go out in order to encourage the rest of the allies and lead them in the battle. And then as soon as the Carnea is over, the rest of the Spartan army will go catch up with them and join the fight. Gotcha. Of course, it, it's all over before the rest of the Spartan army gets there. So it's really just these 300 guys and their um, enslaved helots who are part of the battle. Um, but mm. that's why there are only 300 uh, instead of like the massive. It's it's not like Leonidas being tricksy with his mm-hmm. e-fours or whatever and like trying to get out. It's, it's because they are in charge of the entire Greek force and they have to make a showing mm. or nothing okay. will happen. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, this movie depicts the battle of Thermopylae, which is where the 300 Mm -hmm. Spartans are. The word Thermopylae does mean hot gates. Um, it's this very narrow mountain pass, um, near the coast. It connects like Northern Greece and Macedonia to central Greece. So, uh, Xerxes has come up from the North and he's going to come down into central and Southern Greece where this alliance is. This mountain pass is how he gets there. Um, it's very narrow, which means numbers don't count for anything, right? You can just stand at the end mm-hmm. of the pass and pick off one guy at a time as they come through. Um, right. So this is a this is a big tactical advantage for the Greeks to um, basically force them through this little mountain pass. Um, it's this, just the Spartan general, King Leonidas, and his 300 soldiers plus their 900 helots against Xerxes. They hold him there for several days. Um, and the Spartans are very, very skilled at close combat. So they take out several thousand Persian soldiers during this time. They're better at close Jesus. combat than the Persians are. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the story goes that Xerxes is absolutely shocked at how defiant the Spartans are. Um, mm-hmm. Their refusal to be cowed. He's, he's just blown away when he sends out a scout to see what they're doing. And the scout comes back and says they're combing their hair. Like that's it. He sees this as like they don't give a shit, right? They're not scared. Mm -hmm. Um, He's very impressed, and it's it's partly that. It's also that Spartans kept their Spartan men kept their hair long, and it was part of their like pre-battle ritual, basically to comb their hair out long into this like lovely flowing. This is part of their battle preparations, basically Mm. getting themselves in the zone. Hmm. Um, So that's what they're doing. But to Xerxes, it's just like a what the fuck kind of moment. <laughs> um, Herodotus tells this story that uh, someone in the forces, there's other Greeks there too, um, by this point. It's not just the Spartans holding holding the mountain pass. Someone says, gotcha. like, the, there are so many Persian archers, they're going to block out the sun. And a Spartan soldier, in laconic fashion, says, great, we can fight in the shade. Uh, <laughs> that is recorded in Herodotus. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Um, so they hold, like I said, they hold Xerxes there for several days. They only lose because a local Greek is hoping for mercy. You know, he sees the enormous Persian army. He's hoping for mercy. He thinks there's no way Greeks can stand against this. So mm-hmm. he tips off Xerxes about this little secret route around the choke point of Thermopylae. So Xerxes forces, he's able, he has enough that he's able to leave some at the pass and then take some around to the back, basically. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's he's got them trapped then from both sides, and at that point, it's a massacre. Um, the all the Greeks are killed. All the Greeks who are left, I should say. Um, when Leonidas figures out that they're coming around the back way, he sends all the other Greeks away. Uh, all the other Greeks mm, who have okay. massed there. So it's just the Spartans left, and uh, seven hundred guys from Thespia who who don't want to leave them. They want to fight as well. Um, there are also 400 Thebans 
who uh, they they surrender very quickly. <laughs> so they're actually mm-hmm. the only survivors are these 400 Thebans who, who just roll over. Um, so it's it's Leonidas and his 300. It's really Leonidas and his like 2300 <laughs> because uh, right. there's there's 300 citizen Spartans, there's 900 Helots, there's 400 Thebans, there's 700 Thespians all fighting and- here. And I bet those thespians put on a hell of a show. Yeah. <laughs> you know they did. You know they did. Oh, yeah. The the panache that they put into killing. Just mm-hmm. exquisite. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, this, um, it is a very, uh, it's a very meaningful battle um, in the war. They, they hold off the Persians for several days here before they're all finally killed. Uh, and the the sacrifice of the Persians is a very inspirational thing for other Greeks then who are fighting. Mm-hmm. As Xerxes is coming down uh, into central Greece, um, he's heading towards Athens at this point. Rather than surrender the city, Athens evacuates. So women, children, non-combatants, everyone, they pack up and they flee to the Peloponnese. So Xerxes arrives at an empty city <laughs> and he's so pissed he burns it to the ground. <laughs> So Athens is is destroyed at this point, basically. Um, And then right around this time, the Athenian fleet, back up. This is, I told you these words are complicated. Uh, (laughs) So in the 10 years between Darius's invasion and Xerxes' invasion, the Mm -hmm. Greeks are up to stuff too. So during this time, Athens discovers enormous silver deposits in their land, in the surrounding Mm. countryside. Mm, And they use that money to build a navy. And this is an extremely impressive fleet for the time. It's it's top of the line. The, the um, warships at the time were called triremes. These are top of the line. Um, so Athens has this extremely impressive fleet now. Um, and they, they Athens and their leader Themistocles manages to get the Persian fleet to fight in this very, again, very narrow strait using the Greek terrain to their advantage this little strait between the mainland and the island of Salamis. There's this very narrow passage. Um, mm-hmm. The Persian ships are very light and maneuverable. The Athenian ships are not. So normally Persia would have a big advantage over them. But in this tiny space, there's no room to maneuver anyway. So the really heavy Athenian ships can just plow through the little light Persian craft to destroy them. Mm-hmm. So there's this, this massive destruction of the Persian fleet. Battle of Salamis is where Queen Artemisia really shines. We mentioned her last time. Yes. As a woman who actually does uh, lead troops in battle. She's an ally and an advisor of Xerxes. Um, She's at the Battle of Salamis um, leading her fleet. And she's like the only Persian commander who's not uh, like shitting themselves and running away. She's actually Mm -hmm. standing her ground and fighting. And there's this line in Herodotus that... Xerxes says, my men have become women and my woman has become a man. You know, it's mm. gross, but it's a compliment yeah. also. Love eh. it. But anyways, uh, at this point, Xerxes goes home for the winter. <laughs> it's clear that this is not going to be a quick conquering victory like he expected. So mm-hmm. he leaves He leaves an army behind and goes back home to make sure no one's like stealing his throne in the meantime. Uh, and while he's gone... The land army that's there makes a peace offer to Athens and only Athens. Hmm. So Athens is part of this alliance with 30 other cities, right? But this peace only applies to them. 
it's a very seductive author offer. So, you know, Sparta's freaking the fuck out when they hear about it because they're afraid that Athens will take it. And if the Athenian Navy joins up with the Persian army, there's no hope for the rest of Greece. Right. Mm, Gotcha. But Athens won't take it. Uh, According to Herodotus, they say they refuse to ally themselves with people who burned their city and their shrines. And they refuse Mm -hmm. to subject their fellow Greeks to slavery. So the quote from Herodotus is, we all share the same ancestry and language. We have sanctuaries and sacrifices to the gods that we share, and we share a common way of life. This is big. This is an early recognition of shared Greek identity across Mm -hmm. their differences. Um, And the decision of Athens to choose cultural identity over material gain is a mm-hmm. really decisive moment in Greek history. Hmm. This is really fascinating. Big yeah. Um, while Athens is doing this very noble thing, Spartans have gone home and they have built a wall around their territory and they are ready to <laughs> abandon the alliance and just hunker down and wait it out and just like defend their own territory. Um, nice. The only reason they come out again is because Athens reminds them, you know, we could accept this Persian offer at any time and then just crush you like bugs. So why don't you come out and help? (laughs) 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 So, uh, yeah, all that Spartan glory. (laughs) Yeah. So Athens refuses to accept the peace. Xerxes comes back in in the spring and there's um, these two battles that, according to legend, they're fought on the same day. Uh, the Battle of Plataea and the Battle of Mycale. One of them's a land battle, huge Greek victory. One of them is a naval battle, also a huge Greek victory. Um, Persia has the resources to recover from these materially, mm-hmm. but the loss of morale at this point is insurmountable. Mm-hmm. So the Persian forces are kicked out of Greece once and for all in 479 after these two one land, one sea battle that allegedly happened on the same day. Um, and gotcha. that that is the end. Um, and th- these wars, like I said, these are a really pivotal point in Greek history um, in sort of sense of shared Greek identity. Um, mm-hmm. There's relative peace in the time that follows uh, because they have had this like lovely coming together to defend their land uh, from mm-hmm. a foreign invader. That really does a lot for uh, people's sort of like national good feeling. Um, mm-hmm. So there is relative peace. Uh, this is a... Uh, a direct cause of the Athenian empire that grows up over the next 50 years. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it becomes a huge cultural touchstone for the Greeks all the way down through history. Even when they're ruled by the Romans, this is like a really big thing for them. The fact that they, in the face of overwhelming odds, they came together, they defended their homeland from foreign invaders and they won. Um, and, The other thing about this is that men of every social class were represented in the Greek militias. Uh, Women in several cities would come together for civic sacrifices and, and, you know, prayers to the gods to aid the armies. Mm -hmm. So it was a sort of like all for one, one for all kind of thing. And that's very unusual in the ancient world. Interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. uh, Sparta was important in in these wars. Sparta was very impressive. but uh, I think 300 makes it out to be a lot more heroic than they actually were. Mm-hmm. Um, they were, they were kind of shits. I mean, we have to remember also that Herodotus was living in Athens at the time that he wrote his history of the mm. Persian Wars. Right, yeah. 
So he's he's pretty favorable to Athens. Uh, but even so, um, there's there's a lot of uh, sort of hero worship that that springs up around Sparta, and you know they were absolutely valiant warriors. They were also assholes. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um also the the whole bit about uh Themistocles that is covered in the the sequel 300 Rise of an Empire. Oh, is it? Yeah. That's okay. uh that's the whole thing is I believe the the Battle of Salamis. Wow. Okay, so, that's awesome. So that. for those of you who are interested, that movie's <laughs> that movie's there. <laughs> I don't know that I personally can recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, yeah, I don't know if I can bring myself to watch that. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's a movie, so yeah. okay, I, I do have a question. Go for it. Spartans wore like armor, right? Yes, they did not fight in loincloths and capes. Mm-hmm. They yeah. wore armor like normal people. <laughs> what the fuck was up with that in this movie? I. This is where. I, this is why I said, like, I can forgive a lot more knowing that this was a comic book first. I assume that this is based on some sort of, like, weird comic illustration. But no, Greek mm. warriors, like, the ones who could afford armor were very mm-hmm. heavily armed. Heavy bronze armor. This is why the Spartan soldiers had two guys to carry their shit for them. Right. Because uh, this stuff was heavy, and if you could afford it, it was your best hope at surviving um, hand-to-hand combat was all of this bronze armor um yeah so just a a wild choice to uh make the spartans in this movie look like old german men at the beach with a cape (laughs) 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 oh my god and while we're on the subject what is with xerxes like bdsm fantasy outfit he's wearing a chastity belt and like a metal collar the the chainmail uh like banana hammock that he's yeah. got going on is about? can i do y'all mind if i get a little blue go for it i mean for sure the the pinching potential of that chainmail banana hammock yeah fills me with so much terror cuz <laughs> yeah oh oh i don't even like thinking about it but there's no way it doesn't pain him endlessly. Mm-hmm. I'll say this, Especially though, for the outfit. Remember. It does make an impression, this outfit. I mean, he, when he leaves the room, everyone's talking about it. That's for sure. <laughs> it is. It is a look, and I'm spelling that L-E-W-K. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's a choice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, they wore armor. Oh, but speaking of clothes, um, I I did appreciate, and for a minute, I was afraid that they had had bummed it up, but um, then it turned out they were just baggy pants. Um, Greeks were very freaked out by the fact that Persians wore pants. Um, When the the Persian emissaries come at the beginning of 300, at first I Mm -hmm. thought they were wearing, like, basically long tunics, and I was going to be really Mm -hmm. hot. It turned out they were baggy pants, so that's good. Um, Greeks just wore tunics. They didn't... Mm. They, I think they thought pants uh, were yeah. constricting um, mm. or something, which, you know, fair. Um, yeah, they're not wrong. They were very weirded out by the fact that Persians wore pants, though. Um, and, like, this was, <laughs> this is, like, part of why they were scared of the Persian army. This is all these guys marching <laughs> in pants. 
I love that. I love the idea that this army shows up and the thing they're fixated on is guys, look, they're they're wearing pants. What the hell? What what is wrong with these people? Oh my god, they're animals. They're wearing <laughs> pants. Oh my god. How can we how can we possibly contend with people who have the the tenacity, the strength to wear pants? Yeah. Yeah. But this is another reason I think why why the metal banana hammock really gets me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like pants would have been just as intimidating and historically yeah. accurate. <laughs> <laughs> was uh was Xerxes extremely tall with, uh, like, an inhumanly deep voice? As far as I know, no. Um, mm. There's a so there's a play about the Persians about the end of the Persian Wars called Persian Women uh, that's written mm-hmm. by um, this guy Aeschylus. I think maybe we've mentioned him before. He was a tragic playwright. Um, he was a he was a veteran of the Battle of Marathon. And he writes a play called Persian Women that's basically about Xerxes skulking home after he has failed to take this, like, poor little nation of Greeks. And mm-hmm. all of the Persian women at the court are just, like, super pissed at him about it. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, the only depiction of Xerxes I, like, have a lot of, like, memory of or connection to in the ancient world, he's like a sad little chastened child. <laughs> <laughs> He's not a big, scary, like, god king with, yeah, the weirdest voice in the world. Yeah. yeah. Buck wild. Um, so the other thing is that uh, when the, the Spartans are marching to uh, Thermopylae, one of them is playing a double flute? Yes, he is. Yes, he Walk is. Walk me through that, please. So this is called an aulos. Uh, it's sometimes also called a tibia. Um, it usually does get translated as flute or double flute, but it's actually mm-hmm. more like an oboe because it's a double reed oh, mm. instrument. Um, Fascinating. Yeah, it's also often so it's it's compared to an oboe. It's also often compared to the pipe portion of uh, like a Highland bagpipe. It's sort of the same. Oh, mechanism. oh okay. Um, and it's sort of the same sound apparently <laughs> as like huh. bagpipe or bad oboe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah that's a tough so, one um, I was a little yeah I was a little confused when I saw I mean I was excited but also sort of confused when I saw a guy playing that because um, most of the time in Greek literature when you encounter an alos or an alos player it's in like a social setting like at a symposium or you know a dinner party mm-hmm. where that's the entertainment um, but a, I did a little looking and apparently they were also used in context of war as well so this is hmm. like instead of your your herald trumpet you have your double you have your outlaws guy uh your hmm. like double oboe flute player leading the army i <laughs> love something <clears throat> i love the idea of this in a social setting because you know how we all get together and just listen to bagpipes uh <laughs> sort of socially for entertainment yeah yeah, yeah. you know it really put a damper on my birthday party. Um, you know, we were having a good time, and I was like, hey, let's all enjoy the the bagpipist that, that I got. And, um, boy, Pete, that cleared out the room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it went over yeah. like a wet fart, let me tell you. 
Yeah, it's a choice. It is a choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, that is a real that is a real ancient instrument, and you don't really see uh, depictions of it very often outside no. of like ancient pottery. So I was very excited to see that. Yeah. No, that was that was a weird touch for this movie. Yeah. There were lots of like weird little details that they got right, even when they were getting mm-hmm. things wrong. Like the Persian emissary at the beginning, just like coming through Greece, asking people for earth and water. That's not how Persia do. Like, they don't just like mm-hmm. wander around asking people for submission. Um, <laughs> but the earth and water thing is real. Um, yeah, right. You know, that was something that Athens offered. Um, and then, well, then apparently, actually, the the Athenian assembly was like really pissed at the the um, diplomats who had made that decision. Um, but you know, there it was. They'd done it already. They couldn't take it back. Um, there were, you know, the things about come back with your shield or on it. Um, mm-hmm. The yeah, that Alvas, the stuff about the immortals, the the immortals being like some sort of weird ghosty spirit force is weird yeah. but th- there was actually like the top fighting force of Persia that doubled as the king's bodyguard they were called the immortals um, mm. and so that was cool the Greek who betrayed uh, the Spartans to the Persians at Thermopylae was in fact mm-hmm. named Ephialtes he was not a deformed Spartan who ran away uh, but he, he was named Ephialtes so like that's fun um, did he uh, did he get a fun helmet though a fun little hat for mm-hmm. betraying yeah, they them. They don't write about that. <laughs> it is kind of mean though. Oh. That, like his little hat that he gets sort of looks like a dunce cap. It does. Yeah. It's like somewhere between a dunce cat and like a, a clan hood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. <laughs> no, but it was jaunty. It was. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. He, he looks. He great wanted in his trader uniform. Yeah, he wanted a uniform and he got one. Yep. <laughs> worth it yeah but other little things like um when when the like rain of arrows starts one of the persians is like uh or one of the spartans sorry is like oh they're cowards um archery does have the connotation of being cowardly in the ancient world because you could kill from a distance and Mm, nobody's nobody's like close enough to stab you or whatever um Mm -hmm. so it's like a safer way to fight um, so there is that connotation. The whole we'll fight in the shade. That's like a, a line mm-hmm. from Herodotus. Um, the bit at the end, there's like a little rhyming couplet that the narrator says um, about, oh, stranger, or like, oh, passerby, tell the Spartans that we lie here, like faithful to the law or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's real. Um, that epitaph is usually attributed to a poet named Simonides, um, but it's the text is in Herodotus in his history of the wars, um, and there was a stone at the, at the place of the battle with this engraved on it. Um, the oh. original stone from antiquity hasn't survived, but in the fifties they put a new stone out there with that same epitaph engraved on hmm. it. Oh, that's um, cool. Which is, which is really cool. Yeah, I love that they have you know little things like that. Um, Leonidas's wife was indeed named Gorgo. Uh, Fun fact, she was also his niece, but they don't bring that up. Ooh. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Ooh, that's, that's, that's challenging. challenging. There's a lot of, well, you think that's challenging. <laughs> um, this is, I guess this is more challenging because of, like, our own times. But there's there's the part in the movie where a Persian says, like, Spartans, lay down your arms. 
and Leonidas says, Persians, come and get them. Um, Mm -hmm. That's a very famous line in Herodotus Mm -hmm. and like from history. Uh, The Greek for that come and get them is Molon Labe, which unfortunately has been co-opted by like white supremacist gun nuts. You see this on the backs of pickup trucks a lot. Come and get them. Yeah. Yeah. God so, damn it. I know, because it's like a really badass phrase in the context of the, like, standing against this enormous Persian army. And right, yeah. And when it's Joe Schmo with his fucking assault rifle. Who yeah. you? The, like. Yeah. It it definitely it, has sort of a weaker connotation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you lose all mm. joy. Yeah. God Talk damn about- it. Yeah. Talking about things they got right on a broader scale, too, because I was really curious if this, like, Klingon-level warrior culture existed. And it sounds like, yeah, kind of, it, it did. Yeah, it totally did. It totally did. Um, it is true that boys were taken from home at age seven and lived in mm-hmm. the barracks there until they were no longer of fighting age. Um, yeah. So Spartan, this is another reason like Spartan women had so much autonomy because their husbands didn't live at home. They lived in the barracks. Mm, yeah. And so Spartan women had the run of their homes um, to a much greater degree than um, like citizen women in other Greek cities did. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Did they um, also do the weird, the fucking baby inspection where it's uh, heavily implied that they, <laughs> they chuck them? Uh, yes. No. Oh. Um, oh, beans. Yeah. Yeah. I real mixed bag, we, Sparta. Yeah, I can't remember if we've talked about this before about that. Um, exposing infants was pretty common. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That. W- um, and uh, this, this was part of it. Like, being able to bear arms was so mm-hmm. important to the Spartan identity and way of life that if. If it was clear that your baby wasn't going to grow up to be able to do that, if there was some sort of like physical disability, or sometimes even if it was just like a, a sickly constitution, um, mm-hmm. they weren't going to take the time and resources to to raise those children. Um, I don't know if they hurled them off a cliff, um, right? But that that's definitely something that that happened. That sort of like general idea. <laughs> it was it was kind of funny though. I watched part of this movie with my husband. And at the opening where they're like standing on that cliff holding a baby mm-hmm. out, he goes, Ooh, it's giving Lion King vibes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it was a choice for Disney to uh, structure the Lion King so very similarly to the Battle of Thermopylae. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. paid off, though. Oh, yeah. Hey, one of my favorite Disney movies. Mm -hmm. so i like my last question is there's a lot in this movie about like shitting on like the old gods and i don't i like i don't i don't understand that because he also at some point says some shit about zeus yeah i have no idea what that's about honestly okay um persians or like spartans were quite religious um mm-hmm. they took these things very seriously you know they they missed the fucking battle of marathon because of their religious right festival. yeah you know, like they they took it extremely seriously um spartans were also known to consult the oracle at delphi 
at the mm-hmm. drop of a hat, <laughs> like mm-hmm. any decision gotcha. they need to make. Um, they actually consulted the Oracle about like certain battles during the Persian Wars that's recorded. Um, hmm. So, no, they took the gods pretty seriously. Yeah. Um, gotcha. So okay. I don't I don't get the the whole like shitting on Zeus and stuff. Yeah, didn't make a lot of sense. Um, I know we're running a little long, but I just wanted to get sort of a, a temperature check. What'd y'all think of the movie? Hmm. Sarah, I think you gotta go first on this one. Yeah. You know, it's not as bad as I expected. Oh, okay. It's not great. Like, let's just be clear about that. It's not a good movie. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> Uh, it's like objectively a bad movie, but there mm-hmm. are also like because of what we've been saying, like they in the midst of getting the sort of like structure of the wars very wrong, they managed to get a few little details right. Um, yeah, and like things that I wouldn't expect to see being like brought up or used correctly in a movie mm-hmm. like this. Um, I was, like, pleasantly surprised by those things. Um, some of the gore is really fucking cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it is. Stabbing guys through the throat. Mm-hmm. Yes, please. Uh, Fuck yeah. Like, the, like, I know it's ridiculous, but, like, the slow-mo jumps and, like, the slow-mo mm-hmm. kicking of the Persian emissary into the pit. Like, I don't yeah. think Sparta actually had a pit that they kicked people into. You know, <laughs> the um, town pit. <laughs> everybody knows the town pit. Um, yeah. But, like, it's pretty badass, even if it is stupid. So, yes. you know, I'm not going to, I don't need to watch it again. But no. I didn't hate it. So, I I struggled with this, I'll be honest, because there's there's so much of this movie that is still cool as hell. Uh, yeah. like the the extreme violence um and so i i landed on sort of a a way to describe it and it's if jock rock were a movie mhm ah <laughs> uh, yes cuz it's like it's still cringy and like too broy and gross but also sometimes sometimes it lands and yeah. it, when it lands, it lands good. I mean, to your point, Sam, most of the fight scenes in this do have a guitar that's in the background. It's just like, dig, 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 And you're like, yeah. yeah and, <laughs> and the sad part is, I remembered those fucking, like, chonky riffs uh, <laughs> so many years later. And, like, there was a part of me that was like, Damn it! Yeah, this is still kind of cool. <laughs> but then they cool. speak. Yeah. Um, and that uh, part was uh, took me out every time. Yeah. Or you know, they show Xerxes with his forty-seven face piercings. Mm-hmm. And his. Oh, fuck. Uh, his like fucking tent of earthly delights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so weird. Again, with the, like, this is the weird, like, Persian excessive luxury stereotype, I think, coming through. Yeah, but the goat playing a flute. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I don't know about that. 
just <laughs> just strange. Uh, I did. My wife was in the room while I watched, and every once in a while, I was like, "You're gonna, you're gonna need to see this." Um, and I didn't do that during the tent scene, but she did turn to me during it and just gave me this like accusatory look. And so I was like, look, I didn't make it, okay? <laughs> like, I don't know what you want me to do about this scene. I didn't tell him to do it. Oh, man. Uh, can I just say one thing? I mean, while we're talking about the gore, one thing that bothers mm-hmm. me a little bit about this is that, so the whole, the whole reason the Greeks, like, held off Xerxes for so long is because of this very narrow mountain pass where only one or two guys mm-hmm. get through at a time, right? Mm-hmm. And multiple times the voiceover narrator talks about, like, the narrow corridor, meant their numbers meant nothing or, you know, something like mm-hmm. that. He says this line, like, three times. Um, never once do they show them actually fighting in the pass. They're always, nope. like, out Thank on you. the plane in front. So you don't actually, Thank like... you. The tactics that you're hearing and the tactics that you're seeing are completely different. And this yeah. really well, bothers me. <laughs> and there's also uh, uh, Gerard Butler spends a lot of time talking about the importance of a Greek phalanx and how that's how they're going to do it. And they're in a phalanx for approximately a minute and a half. Yeah. And then the rest of the time they're just kind of running around on their own, yeah. flipping and rolling and stabbing. And, like, the first few times they, quote-unquote, get into a phalanx, they're not in a phalanx. Like, the whole point is that the shields are, like, overlapping so mm-hmm. that there's no gaps. And this is also yeah. why he told poor little Ephialtes that he couldn't be, like, couldn't right. fight with them, right? He, like, kicks the guy out and then doesn't even do the thing that he says, like, the guy can't do. Well, then, yeah. doesn't a phalanx also have, like, uh, multiple shields, like, high? It can, There'll yeah. be, like, a, a couple high, and... I did notice in one of the shots that um, they're in their, like, faux phalanx, and you can see the first two rows are, like, down and, like, prepped, yeah. you know, shields out and stuff, and then behind them you see three rows of people just kind of standing, <laughs> just sort of. <laughs> just... The director said, you guys aren't going to be in this shot. You can just yeah, take don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, you won't be in the shot. It's fine. We'll edit you out, and then they forgot. Yeah. And so it's just, like, some dudes just like I'll wait my turn I guess yeah oh my god oh I know we're running long but can we also just talk about the fact that this cast is stacked and yet the movie is what yeah. it is mm-hmm. holy hell yeah uh, Gerard Butler Scottish mm-hmm. masterpiece uh, mm-hmm. David Wenham the narrator is fucking Faramir from Lord of the yes. Rings Michael Fassbender like, I forgot he was here, and so yeah. I saw him, and I was like, is that Michael Fassbender? Yeah. Yep. And like, yeah, just is. overjoyed. Dominic West is like the evil Spartan Council member. Uh, Jimmy McNulty. Cersei Lannister is, uh-huh. like, is Gorgo the Queen. Like, Yeah. This cast uh, and is then killer. Rodrigo Santoro is Xerxes, yes. which mm-hmm. is probably... Probably a racist casting, <laughs> but um, he's he's great in Westworld as I cannot remember his character's name. He's yeah. lovely in Love Actually. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. He is, dear God, help me. 
This is this is riveting audio, Sam. Yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I just want to give him credit for um, Hector. Hector. We'll just say Hector. <laughs> it's a mononym. <laughs> yeah, it like it cut it. off the last bit of his his last name, and I don't I don't want to Hector Escaton, something something yeah. along those lines. He's great. Uh, in and he does a decent job here in some ancient BDSM gear. Yeah. Uh, again, it, I feel like they could have gotten, you know, an actor with an ethnicity far closer to Persian than... Uh, what, this random Brazilian guy? <laughs> Wait, <laughs> yeah. Sam, do you mean all brown people aren't the same? Uh, I, I, I hate to inform you <laughs> that, yeah, unfortunately... <laughs> They're not yeah. all the same. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So, I didn't ever voice what I thought of this movie. And we're going Oh, yeah, long. Luke, so, what'd you think? So, I'm going to keep it real short, because we are, in fact, quite over budget on this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, the editing fees hey, alone are going to be... It's... Luke, it's yeah. before the housing crisis. Anything <laughs> fucking goes. <laughs> it's true. We are so, firmly in fuck-around territory. Yeah, so let's fuck around for a little bit. So I agree with with both of y'all as far as there are moments that are just badass, like the big kick mm-hmm. into the the town pit, classic, mm-hmm. classic for yes. a reason. Um, I think to sum it up, this movie if it's just too long. If they'd made it like a thirty minute short and like mm. just had like a single big battle, uh, and then I don't know, they could have kept it pretty short. Because the, the gist is 300 dudes, big mountain pass, betrayal, dead. And you could have kept all the same shit and just made it yeah. shorter. Because about the minute or the hour 30 mark, I was like looking at my watch like, come on, y'all. It, we, we can get out of here. It really does start to drag Yeah. Uh, for, for after an hour and a half. For a movie that's less than two hours long, it's amazing how long it feels. Exactly. Oh, Sarah. Sarah, I gotta tell you, you can't imagine how much a short movie can drag, <laughs> uh, but it is possible. I mean, I checked how long I had left in this mm-hmm. like six times, and the first time I was only I was only half an hour in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sort of a pro tip: don't ever check how long is left. Uh, yeah. As we go through these movies, you will just get sad. Yeah, yep. uh, yeah, I think I'm gonna have to make you depressed. I'm gonna have to limit myself there. Yeah. Can That's I say it. one last thing? Sure, bud. I hated how uh, Gerard Butler, as he was dying, became this sort of Christ-like figure. I don't get it. I didn't yeah. like it. We didn't need it. Yeah. Yeah, not a fan. No. I mean, unless Gerard Butler is Christ. But I don't huh. believe so. Maybe. I don't think so. More but research would be Scottish required. Jesus. Yes. A Scottish Jesus is a powerful image. It really is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah. Damn. Yep. Anywho. <laughs> Let's get out of yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, so uh, just real quick. Uh, let's talk about what we're going to watch next week. Uh, which is Life of Brian. Mm, excellent. We're bringing in the Monty Ooh. Python. 
Yes, I am so excited for this one. We've all seen this, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, we're just in for a treat next Mm -hmm. week, or next time. Damn it. Uh, well, folks, until then, uh, thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Facebook at Greased Lightning Podcast. That's G-R-E-E-C-E-D. Uh, you can also find us on uh, Instagram at Greased Lightning Pod. You can find us on Twitter as long as it lasts at uh, Greased Light. <laughs> and you can send us an email at GreasedLightningPod at gmail.com. Uh, yeah, well, Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Uh, and uh, and we'll see y'all next time with uh, Life of Brian. <laughs>